welcome to Waiting for Review, a show about iOS development and the Apple ecosystem. From Wellington, New Zealand, I'm Dave Wood, and joining me from Devon, England, is Dave Knott. Okay, so this week we thought we would talk about infrastructure and how we approach infrastructure, specifically as sort of one-man indie developer shops. For me, it's this is definitely the part I like the least. I, I don't really like anything to do with infrastructure normally because that in my head that means sort of long-term hassle stuff like servers have the potential to stop working and go down and affect my users on a on a mass scale and that sort of thing makes me uncomfortable makes me a little bit twitchy I, I don't really like it um, probably something to do with the fact that I'm not exactly a server expert either so I'm probably out of my comfort zone a little bit there so as an indie dev I try and I try and pass this stuff off as much as I can to other companies, people that specialise in it, people that are interested in it. Because I think, in in quite a large way, I'm, I'm a large part of the issue is I'm just not interested in it enough to be that be that into it. Um, <laughs> I think you've said referred to it once, putting an SEP field around it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so somebody else's problem, somebody, <laughs> somebody else's problem field. <laughs> If if you can do with any of this sort of stuff, I think it's it's quite important to, like you say, just sort of hand it off, give it to somebody else who cares about it more than you do, um, and just sort of make it their job. This means usually paying for a service. A good example of this actually would be sort of current website setup for the podcast. Yeah. With the new form of website that we have now that you've developed, it's hosted with a WordPress-based host. So we've got a WordPress website. The MP3s that everybody downloads to listen to are hosted with um, Amazon Web Services, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This is our own kind of DIY setup, but equally it's kind of not because WordPress itself is is themed. It's kind of all looked after for us now, isn't it, in terms of the, the theme and setup of the site. Once that theme is down, then there's no more HTML to code. It's just we make new posts, and that gets added to the existing site. Yep. We use kind of turnkey plugins for WordPress that do the um, statistics tracking for the podcast itself. So that's Blueberry, isn't it, that, that we use there? Yep, and also for kind of managing the, the episodes as well, publishing those yep. each week. That's all done through Blueberry. But the important thing there is that we're not, not hand-coding links. We're not kind of maintaining our own CMS of any sort. And we're sort of sitting on top of infrastructure that is readily available. And like I said before, it's just kind of turnkey. So you just configure it, you set it up, and, and off it goes. And that means that obviously there was the overhead to get the site together in the first place. And, and you did the vast majority of that work, Dave. So hats off to you there. <laughs> it's certainly, I think, looking really quite awesome. Now that that work is done every week, it's, it's sort of paying back a dividend in terms of we can then just post a new episode of the podcast just as easily as sort of writing a, a, a post to a blog. Yeah, and I think the other thing to consider there is what we ended up doing with the, the web hosting because originally we were kind of like, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to have it all on Linode and, or something similar? I think we kind of went down that route pretty much right until the last minute, didn't we? Yeah. And then it became apparent that you know, there was a version of PHP that was out of date and that could do with updating and this and that. And that's kind of when I start getting out of my comfort zone, to be perfectly honest with you. So we decided to 
just kind of go again almost to like a turnkey web hosting supplier. So again, you could almost say that's another another way that we kind of handed things off, put an SCP field around it. <laughs> Although, ironically, at the time we record, our, our website is currently down. Uh, so <laughs> we'll uh, have to raise a ticket about that pretty soon. Yeah, but again, we're not scrambling to try and get the server back up ourselves. We're not trying to go back to instances and backups or anything like that. You know, that, that, that side of things is somebody else's problem right now. Yeah, and the and, site is back now. Hooray! <laughs> cool. And, and that that's it. You know, you, you've gone to somebody else, uh, another company who specialise in web hosting and they, they sort these problems out as they occur. That means that it is less stress for us. You know, that, that is the payback there. That That is the, the payoff for paying the other company to host the site. And yeah, we could do all of this on Linode, you know, and DIY it and have a a whole sort of setup there that works. And I think there's probably one or two things that, you know, we we could download that would just sort of make that side of things easier as well. But, and the but is that we would always be sort of keeping track of everything and keeping that server up to date. Yeah. Kind of needing to make sure it's security patched and all of that side of stuff. And suddenly you're not hosting a podcast anymore. You're actually becoming um, a, a sysop, a server admin as well. And unless you're already doing that job in the first place, and this was just something else within the broader scheme of everything that you were normally doing, then you've suddenly created an awful lot of overhead for yourself just to, you know, put some files up and make sure that people can can listen to you every week. That would be, to, to my mind, it would be silly to sort of take on that sort of activity. But it's only silly on reflection. We very nearly did it. Yeah, it came pretty that, close, didn't it? Yeah, and and that is a story again and again. I think for indie developers, especially, is that we are we're engineers. We we make things, and when you do that, you sort of see everything through this lens of can I make it? Can I do it? How difficult is that really to do? You know, oh, it's just this. I can just do that, and five or six just do this is later. You've suddenly got this kind of stack of stuff that is now your responsibility and you've got to maintain it. Certainly when you're talking about server-side stuff, this sort of thing can balloon quite quick. So from my mind, I I have to sort of come back and say, well, okay, what is it I'm really trying to do? And certainly when it comes to app development, I think you need to sort of ask that question. As as a solo developer, you need to ask that question quite often. Oh, yeah, all all the time. All the time, yeah. Yeah. I... It's funny, like this time last year, I kind of nearly fell down that kind of rabbit hole myself of, oh, I'll just do this, I'll just do this. And, you know, when I was uh, looking at sort of thinking web consultancy work was kind of going to be my sort of future, um, obviously it isn't now, as we spoke about in a couple of episodes ago, but um, a major decision for me at the time was how I would plan to run web hosting obviously if i was planning to be building websites they need to be hosted somewhere and again it came pretty close to the to the point where i thought well if i can just get like a five dollar linode and you know if i'm making sites that are relatively simple i could probably put quite a few onto a five dollar linode and then charge x amount (laughs) a month to each client and then i'm making loads and loads of profit and and then i had to stop myself and be like no this probably is actually sort of going against every every reason you went into this for you know, I've worked in places before where hosting was offered in house, and it, it can be quite a, an attractive way to make money. Um, 
just some quick back of the napkin math will quickly tell you that if you have a hundred sites um i don't know what different places charge for hosting but let's just throw in a random number of 20 pounds a month pretty quickly that's two thousand pounds a month for and assuming the server goes down or doesn't go down rather that's two thousand pounds a month for just nothing basically until it does go down that's the point it's fine until it does go down then you've got angry clients some of which might be quite threatening to you um especially if they're in like the e-commerce business for example and they're losing money for every hour your server's down so yeah i think (laughs) i think my point is it's all good until it isn't um which is fine if your whole job is is what you said like being a sysadmin but that is definitely not me um i don't class myself as a sysadmin in any way whatsoever i mean i can i can get by in the terminal on my mac for things like git um installing cocoa pods various other lightweight stuff in the terminal but the, the thought of me sshing into a server upgrading the version of php only to find it's got a conflict with the current version of mysql is my idea of a nightmare to be quite honest with you <laughs> so any sites that i did make during my um sort of web consultancy period last year i handed off the hosting i said to clients up front i was like i, I am not a web host in any way um yeah. There are tons of companies that are, and I can get you set up with them. That's all fine. You know, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. And then if, you, if your server goes down at you know, 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning, they've got a 24-7 call center you can call. You don't need to be leaving me 15 angry emails you know, <laughs> that I don't get to <laughs> until 10 o'clock the following morning or whatever, and I just happen to check my phone by chance and I see them. For me, it would be a constant battle to try and keep up with being constantly on call for things like that yeah. whereas these hosting companies by design are like that as opposed to me having to bend over backwards to try and somehow manage it so yeah very glad i <laughs> i said no to the hosting idea in my head because that, that would have been a problem yeah and it is it's a good example again of, of something that looks really quite simple like you were saying you know back of the napkin sort of math when you try and figure out sort of what what money could be made there but the reality of it is, is that you are still only one person and you're then biting off more than you can chew in the event that something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just say I we decide to take a holiday to America and I'm on a 10-hour flight. 10 hours is a yeah. long time for us. If, if, say, the server goes down the minute the wheels go up at Heathrow <laughs> and, I and I don't hear about it until we you know, wheels are down in, I don't know, San Francisco or wherever. Yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> That's really, really terrible. Yeah, and I'd, I don't think I could have that stress. You know, that's just not something I could consider bringing into to my, my life, really. Yeah, I, I would hate it. I, I would be a constant bag of nerves. Um, I don't know, you could say, well, you know, you can get Wi-Fi on planes these days. Well, what if the Wi-Fi doesn't work on the plane? Or what if the plane you think you're going on that has the Wi-Fi breaks down and they put on a secondary plane and you have to go on that one that doesn't have Wi-Fi? And there's all these... <laughs> There's all these things that you could think, oh, well, it will, it will be fine because of this. Yeah. But all of these... And then, it, you know, every, every night, what if you want to have some sleep? Yeah. Because you can't be 24-7 on call all the time as, as a solo dev. Yeah, definitely. I, so, I think you just need to look for easy wins, I think, don't you? And, and hosting is certainly not one of them. I was going to say, I would just sort of say for anybody, really, who's got their own applications, they're therefore going to want to have their own site for those applications. Just keep it simple, unless, you know, you are offering some sort of service as well where you are developing websites all the time and this is sort of something you can just spin something up and do it, then don't assume it's just that that easy. 
and and oh i'm now going to suddenly start coding in, in html and css and all these other things that i don't normally do um just stick with something that's straightforward like start a, a use a wordpress site or even go and pay for a squarespace site or something like that and yeah. just make it easy make it as, as straightforward as you can yeah i mean the only stuff i will host is kind of my own stuff because yep. I know that if it goes down, none of it's really the end of the world. I mean, that our podcast site going down for a few minutes there, ironically, just as we were about to talk about infrastructure. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first saw it being down, it was like, oh, that's annoying. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Not really. Not not in this grand scheme. Um, if it's down for, for, you know, half a day or a day or something, we might start to, to wonder whether we want to really be with that host. I guess if it's going to keep doing that, yeah. But it's it's not like you're suddenly watching watching all of your business disappear or, or watching all of the support requests sort of start coming through or anything like that. You know, it's just okay. It's one of those things. I think so far we've spoken about this in terms of almost through the lens of web hosting. Um, yeah, and I'd almost see web hosting as kind of one of the easier things you could host as long as you're kind of hosting relatively simple sites. And not like these super complex web apps, but I think really that kind of allows the conversation to sort of go go across to what we might be thinking about with iOS in terms of backends for applications. And again, it's kind of quite timely that we're talking about this because I've got a couple of apps in the early stages of sort of being prototyped, designed, thought about, both of which will require a backend. And again, it Despite what we just said, I, I even thought about, well, you know, could, could I, could I, could I make my own? But then you have to stop yourself again as a one-man shop, a part-time one-man shop at that. You need to look for, you know, easy wins constantly. Um, so as such, I've been looking into into CloudKit, and I think that is, you know, it's not perfect, but f- for an indie developer, uh, a solo indie developer, it has so many advantages that I just can't overlook. You know, the thought of having all these having a ton of servers at, at Linode running all the time that I'm responsible for again it's just like it's not it's not it's not sustainable I don't think but I, I think CloudKit has certainly got a lot to offer um, indies if you need any kind of backend I think it's worth considering um, and looking into properly um, you, you could be kind of like oh yeah Apple doing services good luck but then for me as a developer beyond kind of not having to be sort of manning a server 24-7 it's got a ton of other advantages for example my users don't have to log in uh, as long as you're kind of logged into your iCloud account in you know, on your phone, sort of within yep. the settings app, that's that's kind of all you need to do. You're, you're kind of logged into the app by default if it uses CloudKit, which is really nice. That means I don't have to manage or store passwords because that in itself is a, a potential liability. If I'm storing password data and there's a breach or something, that's that's horrendous. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be having to worry about that. Um, no, not at all. So again, that's that's that all nicely handed off. That's really good. Authentication just out of the box it's there yeah just done um really nice from from a privacy point of view i i'm removed from viewing my users data not not that i've got any interest in seeing it in any case but it's it's just nice that that's the case by default um yeah kind of makes me feel comfortable about it uh there's kind of built-in support for sharing there's a javascript api for making web apps if you want to go off of ios for any reason um and yeah the, the most important bit i don't have to run and maintain the server to uh to run run this service i can stay focused on developing my app uh developing features rather than sort of getting bogged down and 
down into the weeds of servers and infrastructure and scaling and security and software updates. Uh, I, I can just forget all about that. So yeah, sure, CloudKit might not be perfect for every developer in every way. Um, I mean, maybe if you want to make an Android app someday, you might want to look at, at something else. But again, for me, I need to look at it through the lens of me as a one-man part-time shop. I feel now more than ever, I, I need to be super aware of when I'm potentially about to fall down a rabbit hole and I need to only tackle problems where I can get easy wins and get good results. Um, and if something has the potential that looks like it might turn into a nightmare, I think I need to avoid or, or, or rethink that problem. Okay, so another area that is probably worth considering with a, a SEP field or someone else's problem field is the um, GDPR. This is the EU General Data Protection Regulation that's coming in in, I'm on the website now, it's currently at 67 days, 15 hours, and there's a load of minutes and seconds counting down. No doubt it will be closer to 59 or 60 or so when this episode goes out, but this is the new regulation that is going to be important in terms of data privacy and the type of data that you keep on your customers, your users. And as app developers, we should probably be aware of this and careful about this, I think. I think this is where you need to pay special consideration to any data that you're keeping on your users, where you're keeping it, how you're keeping it, um, and essentially whether you're giving them access to things like being able to opt out of, I, th I think it's opting out of marketing considerations and that sort of use of their data as well. Uh, which means that could have sort of fast, far-reaching sort of implications for things like um, user analytics even on that side of things. So as indie app developers, even if you think your app is not using any service that could be covered by this side of things, maybe it's a shoebox app and it's doing everything inside the application on the device and it's not putting any data anywhere else, you still may have considerations if you've if you've plugged in Crashlytics or Fabric or that side of things, then you know you're you're tracking user interactions and there is some data being taken on there. And so I went looking, I went checking out this side of things with the services that I use, and I found that Fabric and Crashlytics, I believe, are planning to support GDPR and all the implications around that um, from day one. There's a page on their website about it. And so it looks very much like they've got it covered. And that's great. You know, and, and this is the sort of thing that I think you should be looking for within any service that you're using now. It's just giving it a double check, make sure that it, they're on track to sort of be compliant in one way or another, and that that looks like at least on a, a base level, it gives you the sort of coverage you need to be compliant with the changes in the law that are going on there. So I've, I've been through, I've checked sort of every, every little service that I use, and one of which is Zendesk, actually. Oh, yeah. That's, that's pre pretty cool. Um, so Zendesk lets me manage support requests and that, that side of things. Uh, my email for support at roboheads.com is wired straight through to uh, Zendesk and my account there. So the user gets back a, a support um, reference as soon as they've emailed as I update and give them replies back that's logged through Zendesk's system and the user sort of then gets 
reply emails come through that are also tagged with that reference. So it all looks really sweet and professional on their side. Uh, there's an app and everything that Zendesk have as well, and I get notifications through when people send me these emails that I might not have got otherwise if my email hadn't given me the push or whatever. So Zendesk has been really useful, and actually it looks like a really good good choice in terms of this sort of regulation because they're updating, they're becoming compliant. The data that they hold in terms of the ticket system is on their side. It's not on my server. And the um, the email itself, uh, when it is sent through from the contact form on my site, I don't store any information in terms of, um, of that. I'm not keeping track of their email addresses. I'm not storing any information other than the, um, the contact form then pings off the email through to Zendesk. And actually, I think if I update that contact form with Zendesk's widget, which I should have done a while back probably, then I should be pretty much covered. Everything is with Zendesk. It's in their service. They're keeping track of all the stuff they need to there. And if I ever came under any sort of investigation because of it, I could contact Zendesk, get the right records, or send people their way. So looks like, as well as being an awesome service, it's it's wrapped up in terms of it's somebody else's problem to sort of deal with with GDPR and that side of stuff. But but there's an example as, as well, though, of if I've been keeping track of that stuff myself, you know, may, maybe the, the contact form enters something into a Google Doc, for example, that is my Google Doc, uh, or pushes something through to my server and I download it every day. My server's then retaining their, their, their data. Wouldn't I automatically then come under this, this side of regulation and need to be sort of keeping track of a bit more than just just that that data there yeah yeah it gets uh pretty complex pretty quickly doesn't it if you're not careful yeah um, again going back to cloud that's kind of one of the motivations there because let's say i started to build my own back end for something that was starting to store lots of user data and, and things like that then yeah i'd find myself in a situation where you know i'd have to sort of be pretty responsible for all of that and uh yeah as, as a as a one-man indie shop that's kind of not where i want to be at all to be quite honest with you you know i need to look at things almost in a from a larger point of view in in the kind of lifestyle that i wanted as a result of being an indie developer i, I basically want to be able to focus on my apps and and features and also things like that all, all this kind of stuff kind of scares me a little bit if i'm perfectly honest um and it's, <laughs> it's not something i want to have to be thinking about on a day-to-day basis i want to be thinking about the next awesome feature i can be making so yeah, again, that's another one of the, the motivations behind looking at looking at CloudKit for me, certainly. Okay, so a few days ago, there was a, a new Apple event announced. This is going to happen on Tuesday, March the 27th. It's over in Chicago. And it looks like it's mainly about education. I don't know if you, you've seen this as well, Dave. Yeah, yeah, I saw the, uh, the the invite go up, and then kind of everyone's predictions on Twitter as to what they thought they would uh, what would likely yeah. see at the event. Potentially a nine point seven inch iPad, sort of coming in at about two hundred and fifty nine dollars. There's potential for a MacBook Air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the MacBook Air has had a few other rumors sort of announced recently as well in terms of um, there being a Retina screen being readied for it as well which is the same as the um the 13 inch macbook pro uh, yeah i i feel weird about the whole macbook lineup it's almost like the whole lineup could do with starting over it just seems 
like the MacBook Air is is almost at odds with the MacBook. Because if you think about it, the MacBook Air was designed to embody thinness and lightness, but then the MacBook is, in that sense, the MacBook is more of a MacBook Air yeah. than the MacBook Air is. That's true. The, the MacBook Air, when it came out, was ahead in terms of its form factor and, and sort of what it signified against the other the other MacBooks that were out at the time. You know, it was thinner than them. It was wasn't faster than them, but it had an SSD before they did. It actually led the way in terms of things like being so thin that the RAM needed to be soldered into the board as well. I'm not sure that was a great thing. Um, so, and at the moment, the current MacBook Air, like you say, is now it's behind compared to to the MacBook. The it feels inch MacBook. It just feels like it's there just to hit a uh, a price point. Yeah, to, to me anyway. Um, but I think the bigger issue is the confusion that it causes across the the lineup. Because to, to me, just having MacBook and MacBook Pro makes total sense. Um, it's like if you're not a pro, get the MacBook. If you are a pro, get the MacBook Pro. It's kind of simple. And then within each yep. of those, yeah, you know, there'll be a few tiers of sort of small, medium, large if you like, um, then you throw in the air and it suddenly gets a bit confusing. I've had family members that have been in the market for buying a laptop and they've been quite confused. It's kind of like, okay, so I understand the MacBook and I understand the MacBook Pro. What What's the MacBook Air all about? It's quite an yeah. old laptop. Why would I get this? It's as good as either the MacBook or the MacBook Pro. And it's called the MacBook Air because it's thin, but then the MacBook's thinner than it anyway. But then it's only 12 inches and it doesn't yeah. have a fan, so your power constraint there... Um, it's just like there's lots of there's a lot of explanation you've got to do. It almost reminds me of like kind of back in the PC days where PCs were you know there was a, the lineup was and still is I suppose kind of large and somewhat confusing. It's almost like the MacBooks straying into that territory. I think yeah. if they could just bring it back, MacBook MacBook Pro, have something that starts at eight ninety nine or nine ninety nine, um, just as the MacBook gradually rolling up through to the MacBook Pro at 26.99 or whatever that ends up topping out at whatever would make sense that seems to me like a much simpler pitch to the user um again like if you're a pro get the MacBook Pro if you're not if you're just sort of browsing the web and doing iTunes and all the rest of it MacBook i think probably all MacBook Pros or they should all all be retina certainly whether you get the entry level 8.99 9.99 MacBook it should that should be retina all the way through to the top end MacBook Pro. I think probably if we're going if we're going down the USB C bandwagon, I think they should all have USB C. Touch bars I would say should be pro only. Um but all pros should have it. Yeah, as I said, I don't think a touch bar should be expected on a MacBook Air update. Yeah, I think if there's gonna be like a thirteen inch escape, that should not be called a MacBook Pro. That should be chucked into the MacBook end of the of the lineup and hopefully they should all have a new fixed keyboard fixed as in <laughs> fixing the issues that they've had with uh dust going into them and, and breaking them that could be the killer feature of the of these laptops if that's what they do could be couldn't in it? terms of I could, I could actually envision people leaving macbook pros to get a macbook air if you're talking it's retina it's you know that that thin and small and the keyboard itself is actually delivering on sort of feel and not trapping dirt and this that and the other in it. Um, I didn't have a problem with my MacBook Pro's keyboard when I first got it, when I first started um, at this job last year. 
but as time goes on, it's sort of starting to show up issues. Uh, really? Like getting the yeah, I've got a key that is missing paint already, and actually looks as if it's had about you know six or seven years worth of use rather than a few months. Um, and it is it's trapping dust as well, so I keep on sort of knock the dust out and do. I think probably my little rant back there about what I'd like to see the MacBook line re- reimagined as probably a little bit much for the educational event. I can't imagine them doing all of that. No, uh, no so I, I'm 50-50 as to whether we'll really see anything about the MacBook Air at this event, to be honest with you. Unless they've got something good to go immediately, then... Well, given know. that it's education, and the MacBook Air is kind of like there to hit a price point, maybe it wouldn't surprise me massively if... Yeah, they they do just uh, you know have a, have a MacBook Air that's priced really competitively for the educational market, and that's kind of the the point of it, which means yep. it lives on. But then maybe it gets removed from sort of general consumer sales, and it's just educational only. Could be. I think that'd be a shame. Which would kind of half solve the problem I was just describing, in that the lineup's <laughs> confusing with its presence. So you never know. Yeah, it, it would solve that, but I think it would be a, a bit of a shame. Uh, for the for the name and for the brand that's sort of built around the MacBook Air previously, um, to sort of be relegated to to that side of things. Um, I I was thinking through the rumours and an idea hit me earlier on as I was sort of thinking through all this stuff. And this is me wish casting again, so be careful. This is this is a cube shaped MacBook Mac Pro kind of dream um but could the macbook air a new macbook air be the first mac to kind of go with an arm chip or some sort of system on chip that um that is with it within apple's control could, oh, that, could that be something we see that would seem to be at odds with the whole educational market because it seems like in education things need to be as cheap as they possibly can it would be at odds for this event, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, but in terms of for the MacBook Air and its progression itself, if the MacBook Air was to see a revamp with a Retina screen, and if it was to have this this new processor or or whatever, you know, that that would have to be, I would imagine, a, a, a WWDC announcement actually, because the requirements in terms of software to get um universal binaries or whatever would be needed to to get mac apps to then run on that processor that would need developer buy-in so that'd be a dub dub thing really to announce that but but in terms of an idea in terms of where this machine could go i actually don't feel like it's too far out of the question it would be a bit of a return back to the macbook air when it first came out in terms of that that machine was it was underpowered, actually, compared to to the other MacBooks and MacBook Pros at the time. You know, it was a, a processor that was designed to be as as lightweight as possible for power consumption. You know, you you ended up with the the, the tinier processor inside of it. Yeah. Compared to the other machines, it was also, like I say, form factor and everything else. It was indicative of the direction of the laptop lineup overall. So. Logically, putting that together to see the MacBook Air be the first machine with an ARM processor in it to run Mac OS. Actually, that, that 
that feels like that could be a thing to me. Yeah, I'd, I, I would just love to see the MacBook Air disappear. I really <laughs> would. It's just time. It's time for it to go. I think what they should As be doing stands, is, yeah. is looking at the twelve-inch MacBook and sort of just stretching that out a little bit. Maybe making a thirteen-inch version of it. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what the MacBook Air will be in a way. And if they can just lose the air, I think it's mostly the, the name. If they can take take the twelve-inch MacBook. Stretch it to 13 inches, maybe put a fan in it to allow for faster internals and don't call it the MacBook Air, just call it the 13-inch MacBook. That's a good solution for me. I don't think, though, given that we're talking about education and everything's about make it as cheap as you possibly can. I mean, look at that. I mean, they're making an, looking at making an iPad possibly at $259. I mean, that is super cheap. Clearly yep. aimed at getting sales in volume, i.e. schools just buying piles of them to give to students. Yes, I think that the MacBook Air has been thrown into the conversation as well in, in this light. It's likely that they're going to keep it around or keep it in its form, current form factor as much as possible purely because they've been making it for ages and yeah. all their tooling has kind of paid off at this point, all of their upfront investment. So now it's almost like their margins are going to be way higher. So yep. the less they do change in it, I guess they can make more or make more money on it or be in the position to offer it at a really good price to education where they hope it might sell in volume. Yeah. I mean, if it goes into education, that's fine, but I think it should be removed from the general consumer market. I think that's kind yeah. of, that should be the deal. If it goes into education, that's fine. Understand why you've done it because you need to, you know, education's kind of a different marketplace. You need to sell loads of them and, you know, they need to be cheap for that to happen. But yeah. I think the, the, the consumer marketplace is ready for it to just disappear now. Yeah, but it just doesn't make sense where it is at the moment. Um, but I'm just trying to look through what else what else is going on there in that event. And Well, I thought the class kit looked interesting. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I did. I've seen like, because class kit's been around for a little while, hasn't it? Or something of that nature? Or is class kit brand new? Uh, from my understanding, it's brand new. Um, kind of where the teacher can run the show. So I guess if, say, you've got a teacher with... 30 kids in the class with an iPad each the teacher can kind of get a bird's eye view of what each kid's doing what task they're on um, oh wow so the class kit would be a developer framework and I'm kind of interested in this in through the lens of, of space readers um, I sort of help kids learn to read app because then I think that will then give teachers the ability to set tasks for students so yeah. if I could update space readers to sort of allow that to be the case, I mean, this none of this is confirmed. This is just kind of me thinking what it could be. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, uh, the, my class kit enabled space readers, would it expose itself to the teacher's sort of management app where, you know, he or she can manage all of the tasks the students are on? The teacher could then maybe set various tasks within space readers for certain students. So, you know, maybe if a student's further ahead, they can go on to a more difficult set of words. And then the, the student could then potentially be sort of deep linked to that task within the app. Yep. Removing the whole, okay, open up your iPads, load up the app, then click it or tap here, then tap this, then go into that. The teacher can just be like, this is what you're working on, tap. And then it auto loads on the student's iPad straight into the task in question. And then the teacher can see feedback about how the students progress through that task, how long it you know maybe took to get to the desired result, to get it right, um, any potential uh slip ups along the way things like that i think that that could be huge that could be absolutely huge 
I saw there might be a new revision of the Apple Pencil. I don't know what that would what that would necessarily bring. I mean, I don't really use an Apple Pencil at all, so I don't really have any point of view on what I'd like to see changed. Because obviously, not using it, I wouldn't know. <laughs> but, but you've got one, haven't you? Yeah, I've got one, and I really enjoy it. I don't really know what I would change about it, to be honest. I think, obviously, maybe less latency would be would be good, but it's already pretty good. Um, I, I don't really have any issues with that side of things with it. And the, the one that I've got is the one from last year, which I think is a second-generation pencil. I don't really know what else you would do to it other than make it quicker. The, the one I used in the Apple Store felt a little chunky. That'd be fair to say. Yeah, yeah, they're they're reasonably chunky. So yeah, maybe a, a slimmer one with. I'd like to see some kind of cool way for it to be stored as well, as as opposed to that leather pouch that you can buy for a load of money from Apple. Yeah, <laughs> just just something, even if it sort of magnets, sort of snaps to the side of the iPad, just so it doesn't roll off the table. Or so I kind of do that when I'm using mine. Um, because I've got the smart cover on top of the, the iPad Pro and that has the magnets down one side of it and there's a position that I can sort of put the pencil on down the side where it kind of just sort of grips to the top. So is there magnets in the pencil? Uh, there's enough metal in it to grip to grip to those magnets but it doesn't seem to affect anything in terms of how it operates or, or gets used. So I've, I've just, when I've when I move it around... You know, if I'm done with it and I put it on the table or whatever, I tend to put the pencil just along there right. and it stops it from rolling under the, the table or whatever and getting lost, which is what was happening before. So, yeah, um, a design that actually took that into consideration properly would could be quite cool. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably where I'd like to see it go. Um, obviously, latency and stuff, yeah, sure, that's, that's great. But it's just, yeah, some way of sort of stowing it away in a more kind of by design way would be nice just to kind of see that acknowledged from apple as well um and there's also rumored to be um a second generation iphone se yeah would you, I, I wouldn't expect it at this event though would you uh, i don't know um it was wasn't it this sort of time of year that the the original se was announced yeah i don't know i don't, I don't know what to think about the se really from a development perspective i would like it to kind of no longer be a thing, just in terms of how small its screen space is. Yeah, but then I suppose uh, that's but, the whole point of its existence, isn't it? That people do still like that screen size. Yeah, and I was going to say that's a totally selfish reason as well to, <laughs> to want it to go. <laughs> but uh, it would be interesting to see if they did do a bump to it, just in terms of whether they would keep exactly that form factor and just bump the internals, or whether we would see something a little bit different. I, I I don't know. Um, I I think the rumors range though. The rumors range from sort of seeing almost like an iPhone iPhone ten type design, all the way through to just sort of you know bumping the processor and sticking with the same shape. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they keep the current form factor, um, like the current industrial design. Again, just because it's kind of the lower end phone, they've already got the tooling set up. It almost seems like it's the phone they don't really want you to buy <laughs> in, in a strange kind of way. I think they, they want to get yeah. you up into the 8, 8 plus 10 territory pretty quick, don't they? But there's a message within all, all of this, though, I think, in terms of, okay, so cheaper iPads, 
if the MacBook Air is just a sort of, you know, it's it's bumped in some manner, but it's for education and kind of a um a, a easily accessible, a cheaper machine to be sort of provided on mass to to schools and that side of things. There's a message within all of these these rumors and these things, if they are true, and that is that Apple is looking to sort of reconnect with the entry level. Yeah. Um, just so, which I think, to be honest with you, there was it felt like there was a bit of a watershed last year with the the iPhone 10 in terms of its price and just sort of that that kind of like, well, okay, that's that's the most expensive um, iPhone that that I've considered buying. Uh, yet and you know I, I just sort of it's felt to me like the sort of push for price increases has just kind of gone up and up and up again over the last 18 months so you know maybe there's something within all this in terms of apple sort of trying to reconnect and, and make things more accessible for people on the other end of the scale which i'd like to see more of yeah i think kind of tim cook's apple is that they almost used, it wants to be the range of products. So if if you want the iPhone 10 and you can afford the 9.99 to buy it, sure, there's that product for you. Um, maybe yeah, the iPhone shouldn't cap out at 7.99 or whatever it is. Um, equally, if you know we're able to make a phone at a certain price point at the lower end, then that's fine as well. And I think having that that gradient of a of a price range is is no bad thing at all. Um, for the customer, it's good because obviously if you want the cheaper thing but you still want an Apple product, you can get that. But then from Apple's point of view, surely better that you're an Apple customer at the low end. Yep. Then gradually you can maybe climb the ladder um, once you sort of buy into the platform a bit more and buy into the product line. It may be next time you'll get the more expensive one. Um, I think it makes total sense. Yep, and it's also, you know, customers for iCloud and that side of stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's bigger picture stuff, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and again, from our perspective as developers, it it's awesome because we need people coming into the platform. We need to make sure that it's not just we we don't want it to become, or I don't want it to become, such an exclusive kind of platform that there's nobody to develop for. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, which at times I, I have kind of wondered about and and worried about a little bit if if the machines are getting more and more expensive and. There's a segment of the market getting pushed out. Does that mean that there will be, you know, fewer people who want things like video mixing apps because they tend to be younger people who also then tend not to have the disposable cash in the same way? You know, yeah. from a selfish perspective, having these machines out there, yeah, that's great. That means there's, there's more people who can potentially use my apps. Okay, we'll call that a wrap. If you've enjoyed today's show, it'd be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or if you could leave us a recommendation in Overcast by hitting that star button. That will help us reach even more like-minded people. Um, Also, we have our Slack channel. We'd love to invite you to join. Our hope is it can be a really great place for fellow developers to come and hang out. If you'd like to join, uh, just leave us a message on Twitter at WFRpodcast and we'll get you signed up. So, Dave, before we run off, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DWRoboHeads. That's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. And you can find my apps at RoboHeads.com. Again, that's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. How about you, Dave? Yeah, you can find my remote control for Cody at armchair-remote.com, my latest app to help kids learn to read. You can find at spacereaders.com. And on Twitter, I'm at underscore Dave Knott. 